The word architecture became on my radar on three separate occasions when I was younger, twice from the TV show Seinfeld and then once from The Matrix, of all places. George Costanza, of course, occasionally told people he was a marine biologist, but usually he said he was an architect. Because I knew the character of George quite well, it wasn't a big leap for me to assume that architecture was a prestigious career. I mean, George wouldn't lie about being something that wasn't impressive. Then in another episode, Kramer refers to a door placement on the corner of a building as being architecturally incorrect. So the next deduction I made was, well, clearly architects choose where the doors go. Finally, in the underwhelming conclusion to the Matrix trilogy, the protagonist winds up meeting the architect, which in this case is just a fancy way of saying the designer or the creator. When you sprinkle in some information gleaned from a high school trip to Spain, where I learned about Gaudi, the renowned designer and architect, my definition plateaued at architect, someone who influences what buildings look like. And my knowledge on the subject became stagnant, until recently. After graduating high school in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, Anna Sampson entered the Bachelor of Science in Architecture program at McGill University, straight from high school. She continued to waste no time and received her master's straight after that. After becoming a fully licensed architect in 2013, she's won an Emerging Leaders Award and has worked on projects ranging from Liverpool to Labrador, notably being the project architect on the RBC Centre in Dartmouth and the Shetabucto Lifestyle Complex in Guysborough, both of these projects in Nova Scotia. Her volunteer capacity ranges from being on the Halifax Design Review Committees to currently being chair for the Nova Scotia chapter of Building Equality in Architecture Atlantic, which promotes the accomplishments and visibility of women and minorities in the field. Somehow, she's even found time to be a big sister in the Big Brothers Big Sisters campaign, in which she was a participant for nine years. Anna has been designing things her whole life, whether it's been a project she's been paid and commissioned to do, to building Lego as a kid, or even designing and constructing her very own tiny home. I'm sure Anna can answer some of my questions about architecture. So if you have ever wondered if architecture is the glamorous life that George Costanza has made it out to be, if architects are just good drawers who sketch all day, or what it might feel like to see a building that you've imagined become real, keep listening because this is Mike Syme with How to Be an Architect. I have Anna Sampson here with me today. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Glad it's, to be involved. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, architecture is one of those things that I've wanted to learn about for quite a while, but I don't know many. We're elusive. Yeah, <laughs> uh, apparently. But as a result of that, I really don't know too much about it. Like, is this the type of, what sparks this type of career for someone? Is, is being creative a given? Or do you really like drawing or something like that? Yeah. Yes. Um, I was always drawing. I was always making things. I loved to um, cut and paste things. I still, and back when I, I think it was 10, I started making origami. I'm still doing that. I just like to be making things all, all the time. So, yes, I people looked at me and thought Anna's a creative 
person. And I don't know if that necessarily means that I have really great creative ideas, but I love to create yeah. <laughs> things uh, and have been doing that since I was a really young child. I, I remember even grade six, I made friendship bracelets and I figured out how to make people's names in the friendship bracelets. Like I took it to the next level. And then I would go to the playground and I had my little like box and I would sell them on the playground for like people's like, yeah. like recess money or something <laughs> like that. Their snack money. They'd like save a, a loony and I'd give them the bracelets and I had a treasurer, one of my friends, her father was an accountant. So yeah. she was my treasurer. I already tried to kind of uh, turn those instincts into a business as a 12-year-old. But With all of these artistic endeavors that you used to do as a kid, well, were you a particularly good drawer or was that just one of the things you like to do? I'm not a fantastic drawer. I think I always had friends who were better drawers than I was, so that's why I thought I wasn't a great drawer, but I, I have skills. I think growing up, I just always wanted to make spaces. I was building forts. I was making Lego I lived on this really interesting street in this town that I don't think is known so well for its architecture. It's Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, which is still a great town, but it's next to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, which probably is known. Well, it is a UNESCO World Heritage yeah. Site. Yeah, yeah, people might know about it a bit more from other places. And But on my street, there was, you know, my house was an old farmhouse, and it was next to a bungalow. Next to us, there was a house that maybe looked like a, kind of like a log cabin in my mind as a child when I looked at it. And then you went a little further up and there was sort of a bungalow that was built into a hill. And then across the street, there was a building or a house that spanned over uh, a brook and it had this kind of like 70s style diagonal wood. And then you went up the road and there was this really like kind of modern type building that was built half over the brook, like with these big concrete columns coming down into the brook. And then across the street from that, there was like a brick Tudor style kind of, kind of um, house. And there was just this diversity on this one street that always made me sort of curious like how it there was something about that that always sparked like an interest uh, in me compared to when all the houses looked the same how young were you when you learned that this interest you had was very relevant to a job you could get um I'd like to joke sometimes that in grade eight, we had these books about all these different careers and you could look through the books and it had a kind of a description of the career and the salary. And I like to say that, well, it was at the beginning because it starts with an A, yeah. but uh, no, I think it was about grade 10. And I, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to be an architect and I'm going to go to McGill. And I think it's because I loved, um, I loved art. I loved going to art class. Like I looked forward, I like ran there so much. But I was really good at math and sciences. I excelled in those in those subjects. And I kind of put the two together and said, okay, well, what's a career that's going to give me kind of the best of those two worlds? Which I think is a natural reason a lot of people probably, you know, put two and two together and get into this. And from that point of grade 10, I probably spent like the majority of grade 11 and half of grade 12 thinking like, oh, maybe I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to go to St. FX or, you know, and, or maybe I'm going to do this or that or this or that. And then finally, of course, in the end, I did architecture and went to McGill. How long did the whole process take from when you started your undergrad to when you became fully licensed as an architect? Okay, I'm going to do a little counting. Yeah. So I started school in 2003. And it, sorry, that's when I started at McGill, my Bachelor of Science in Architecture yeah. program. And I was licensed in 2013, 10 years. So that's a long, that's a long yes. <laughs> haul. Uh, that's yeah. a commitment. Yes, how, I got to ask, did you know you wanted to embark on that out of high school? Um, I think I probably made a lot of assumptions about what the career was and, and um, 
I don't, I mean, I don't know if you ever know really what you want to, want to do. I shouldn't say that. Some people, I think, certainly they just, they just, they do, or they witnessed it. I didn't know an architect growing up. I didn't, I grew up in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. And I think that maybe there was an engineer there that I thought might've been an architect. And there was somebody who taught architecture or architectural drafting that I thought might've been an architect, but I was uh, a, a little bit blind to having witnessed what what architects do but I certainly had witnessed the product of what architects do and I think that's what really kind of fascinated me that to me from high school from a perspective of a 17 18 year old seems like uh, a lot of foresight or as you said maybe it's just you made some assumptions and they turned out to work yeah maybe it was just what is it, naivete yeah. <laughs> in some in some ways. I don't know. I knew I wanted to do it. Yeah. And I don't think I ever questioned um, the length of time to get there because there's a lot of great stuff that happens in that journey to get there. Yeah. You know, I still think pretty fondly about those 2 a.m. nights in studio. Uh, well, not that fondly <laughs> about those. Um, you know, as long as I wasn't there alone, you know, there was, there was some greatness in that. Sometimes that's when you had some of the best ideas too. When you're in the internship program, I, that word is almost unfortunate because the world thinks of an intern as someone who doesn't get paid. That's not the case. That's really just the beginnings of your career. Uh, and some people stay in that phase longer than others. I was pretty keen to remove the word intern from the beginning of my t- job title. You know, it's just all, all part of the process. And of course, it was great when I finally was licensed. That was a big moment. Uh, once you completed all this education, which I understand is quite the arduous process, tell me a, bit, a little bit about the job you have today and the work itself. Like, what does what do you do as an architect? Do you have anything that would approximate a normal work schedule at all? Do you travel much for your job? For my job, um, I oversee our sports and entertainment sector in Atlantic Canada. So that has me traveling sometimes on the road somewhere within Nova Scotia and sometimes getting on a plane and flying to Labrador. And so I find that that is probably a big factor in not having a normal work week is if I'm getting on a plane or I'm getting in a car and I'm driving uh, to northern New Brunswick. And often when I'm doing those trips, it's to have meetings and it's to really take advantage of a lot of face-to-face time with people. And so, uh, you know, I'll work a normal day doing that, but then I'm back in the hotel for five or six hours catching up on all the work that I would have done if I were in the office that day or emails and or project coordination. I rarely have a week where I don't work longer. We actually have a 37 and a half hour work week. But projects sometimes don't allow for it. Project deadlines aren't regular. If you have multiple projects on the go, the deadlines sometimes are at the same time. So I certainly have had my share of, you know, 50, 60 hour work weeks. But I don't think you get, you become an architect and think I'm going to work nine to five. Um, It's also hard, I find sometimes just to uh, let go of it when you do get home because there's a lot of decisions that are being made and you're really sort of attached to your projects and you end up thinking about them at sometimes the weirdest times, <laughs> you know, like an idea comes to your, to you or I think it's the result of being in a profession that is very much a mixture of science and art. And it's very hard to put a finish line to anything that's artistic. You, know, you can always make it better. 
you can always improve upon it. You always want to improve upon it. When you talk about this artistic aspect of your job, does that ever conflict with the business part? As annoying as it is sometimes to have, not annoying, that's not the right word, as... Um, no, as annoying as it is sometimes to have, you know, the accounting team tell you that you're getting close to the end of your budget on a project, it's also a, a, a good indicator of are you doing what you said you would do for this project or are you doing extra? And if so, why? And you sometimes have to remember this is a business and for it to be sustainable and for me to continue to do this, we have to make a profit. When I imagine an architect, I do picture someone who's working with pencil and pen and paper uh, for the most part. But I imagine today it's mostly done by computer or do you still do a lot of work by hand? Is there one of those mediums that's most fun to use? Yeah, it's all fun. Uh, I do do a lot more sketching probably two-dimensionally or very diagrammatically at the beginning of a project, uh, keep things pretty loose. I probably move quicker than I should into the software um, depending on the project. It's really easy to get lost in when you're doing things I find in the software, really easy to not, not lost, but kind of bogged down into the details. I do find it valuable when I get, you know, into say I'm, it's a floor plan and it's just not really working like I wanted to, you know, take it out, print it off, get some trace paper, get a big fat marker, kind of try to work out. And your hand does something that when it's, when it has a pen in it, that it, it doesn't have, doesn't do when it has a mouse in it. I do like to work things out that way. In school, we did a lot of models. and uh, There are a lot of architects who still do physical models of all of their, their buildings as well, which I think is a valuable exercise. Just sometimes the, the timing doesn't allow for it or it's just not necessarily part of certain architects' process. They're really great tools for communicating to the client or to the public what it is that, that you're going to get. Sometimes we forget as architects that people don't, read a building as like a floor plan like people don't don't understand floor plans all, always and nor necessarily sh should they and you need a lot of different tools to explain your ideas one of the things that we're starting to pop up different companies are certainly pushing forward and becoming more familiar with using virtual reality software so that you can actually slap a pair of goggles on somebody and walk them through the building so they can really understand it better that way as well a lot of being an architect or a lot of architecture or getting architecture to actually happen is being able to communicate your idea. And so that's where the the artistic side or the drawing or the graphic representation side of the, the job is so critical. Uh, and those who can tell that story well graphically, but also using words that people understand and, and uh, receive well is uh, a really uh, critical skill in the job. Since you're working on different buildings and different structures that have to have a date of completion at some point. Is all of your work finite in nature or is all of your work very project-based? Yes. I mean, that's, we do projects. <laughs> yeah. But most of the work that we do is project-based. Some of those projects might be a month long. It might be a little study just to get something off um, off and running for a, a client and then it might go away for three years while they work through an idea and get funding I mean, three years is an example but it could go away for some time and then depending on the size and scale of the project um, it could be um, you know 
one year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years. We did do a project um, that started when I started working at the current, I've been at the same company for 10 years now. And when I started in there in 2009, uh, we were introduced very short, or I was very introduced very shortly after to a project that technically just finished last April, just opened up last April. And so, it, And it was in progress when you began at the company? It, it was starting up about maybe six months after I started because there was a big pause while they got their fundraising in order, they got uh, their money. And the project originally was one type of, of uh, facility. It was, a, it was a recreation facility. It was focused on one kind of program and then in the end became a different type of facility offering different kinds of programs than originally expected. So, and so can you give me like an average type of project that from, you know, do you respond to requests for proposals or do you put out, like do you act actively chase work and then once you get it kind of from start to finish, what's that like? Uh, so it's hard to say an average project because so, the projects are so so different. But we architects spend, uh, in particular in my office, we do a lot of public projects. I might not surprise you in saying that there's more to the process of architecture than meets the eye. In order to give you an understanding of what an architect truly does and how they go about doing it, well, we'd be here all day. So what I'll do is I'll summarize and elaborate on some of Anna's detailed synopsis into something a bit more bite-sized. It's not the be-all, end-all exhaustive list of architecture, but I'll try to give you some appreciation for what architects do. Because it is a variable process. I mean, depending on about a million different variables, projects can take as little as one year or as many as 10 years. After all, there's a famous church in Spain that you can go visit, which has been a work in progress for almost 150 years. So at the very start, sometimes architects are hired directly by the client, though often the whole process begins the same way as it does for many other industries, answering requests for proposals, or RFPs as they're commonly known. An RFP is released when one group that lacks a certain key element like expertise, staffing capacity, or professional license, among other things, puts out a request to groups that do have those things, and they request that they create a proposal to complete the project. Common examples might be the Royal Bank of Canada putting out an RFP for a brand new advertising campaign. The government might put out an RFP to an external scientific body to research causes for endangered fish stocks. Or a person or group who's interested in building a structure might put out an RFP to an architecture firm for assistance to deliver the project. Usually this is a competitive process where responding firms will compete on scope, price, projects, timeline, among other things. Um, we spend a lot of time answering requests for proposals. Uh, so, and they're pretty time intensive efforts and you never know when they're coming. So you might have like a full plate of your workload. And so it comes out and you dive right into answering this request for proposals and they're, you know, pages and pages of qualifications and methodology and um, resumes and schedules and innovative approaches that you will take on the project and demonstrating your expertise. So if, you're, if you've done a really good job on that and you get awarded the project, sometimes you're answering a proposal to do what we call pre-design services. 
So there are things that are So once an RFP has been successful, services. certain so projects begin with pre-designed services. Even before the architect begins designing, there can be a list of tasks to determine if the building should or even can be built. Architects call this phase the pre-design. Zoning laws, existing structures, and the way the building will fit in with the needs of the community will all be evaluated. Architects often help clients determine what type of rooms and spaces should go into the building such that it meets the client's needs, and to verify that the budget will cover their desired project. It's possible that during this pre-design phase that the client learns that they want to construct a completely different type of building or not construct at all. Uh, pre-designed services might include needs assessment and feasibility studies. Needs assessments meaning establishing is there a need for this project, like an actual defined need. We often support uh, needs assessments and feasibility studies, which are done mostly led by, in, in my experience, by a planner. They will establish at very first the, the need for a facility. So they'll look at demographics, current registration in different in programs, similar communities and what programs they're, they're running, or if they're, we know there's a need for the project, but what is there mostly a need for? If you're going to do a recreation center, is it likely that it will get the best use and the most frequent use if it's all a hockey arena or if you were to say, for instance, a walking track. We, we know we've got a lot of um, large senior population. We have a long winter months, and we want to create an opportunity for uh, a social, low-impact recreation for offering for our community. That's a program that we recommend. Okay, so if we include a, uh, a walking track, how much is that going to cost to build? And then if we do build that, how much is that area going to cost to heat, to cool, to maintain, and are we going to charge anything for that? So you look at revenues, do we have to staff it? Like they really start to make a business case for a building. More and more on public projects um, that are getting government funding, they want to see that need established and that feasibility established. So it's, it's one thing for a community to spend $10 million on a building, but it's another for them to spend $300,000 a year to operate and maintain that building. So that's what some of the pre-designed services uh, would entail. Um, often and then comes concept or schematic design. So now that the building's need has been established and proved viable, the client can then describe the type of space that they want inside the building. They might request an entryway with a grand atrium and chandelier, with office spaces overlooking above. The architect would put these desires into general sketches and add professional feedback regarding the client's intentions, whether it's natural lighting requirements or opinions on practicality and flow. There's many meetings and back and forth or during the schematic design phase. Services. So basic architectural services start with schematic design, which is the really high level visioning for a project. You're considering things like uh, the site, orientation, uh, placement of the different pieces of the, the building, who's going to be using the building. Uh, these are the, the, the early day broad strokes when you do a lot of that sort of hand drawing. You might be doing public engagement during that time. You're certainly engaging stakeholders. You find you know, who are the people who are going to be using this building, who are the people who are going to be maintaining the building, operating, operating the building, 
spent a lot of time getting those people in a room and getting big ideas out from those people. What are, what are the things that are making their jobs harder in the current building or making their lives more difficult in their current building they're in, if they are in an existing building? If not, um, what are they going to be doing in this new, new building and what do they need in order to accomplish their goals? So that's, that's concept design or sorry, schematic design might might last a, a, a couple of months or, or longer, depending on the size of uh, the project. Then you move into a phase called design development. And so design, design development. development uh, this is where you really start to see what the building might be like. At this stage, subjects regarding the building material, window types, and appliances are all being discussed. Although engineers are present from the beginning, they and other specialized consultants tend to become more active at this stage for things like structure, lighting, plumbing, and heating systems. When you see the computer-generated renderings of a building that show color and landscape, usually these renderings were created during the design development phase. Then you move into a phase called design development. And so design development uh, is more about, that's the phase where you spend more time thinking, okay, well, I need this many toilets and this is where they're going to be. And I have, you know, five offices and I can fit this desk here and I'm getting, you know, sunlight coming in here. So this person gets a view. And so you're really starting to get into the, the nitty gritty of, of your design. Um, before that, in schematic design, you've already Once you finish the pre-design, the schematic design, and the design development, you then have a little bit more design. Because now you begin designing the actual construction documents. And these are the pieces of paper, or digital files more commonly, that electricians, carpenters, plumbers, etc. can use to actually create something. These are the fine details of what the pieces are and where they go. To put it another way, these are the instructions that, to the average person, look like a cluttered mess of lines, notes, and numbers. But you need these drawings in order to get approval from your client, to get a building permit, and to begin construction. Um, and then you move into construction documents, and that's when you get into, well, that's the real nitty-gritty. That's how are we going to build everything? Uh, what kind of doorknobs am I going to use? It's writing really detailed specifications about all the products. So the construction documents phase includes a series of drawings, highly detailed drawings, which have become more and more detailed over the years because um, we're doing them on the computer now. So we are, you're developing a lot more drawings than they used to in the past. When you see a set of drawings from when they were hand-drawn, there might be 10 pages where we now have 40. That, I think, is a lot to do with the fact that we can do, do that. It's, it would have been not as time efficient. Also, I think that people are genuinely looking for more detailed information on how to build these buildings. It's uh, just, I guess, highly more scrutinized <laughs> process. It's rare. I don't actually, I would say, I'm not sure it's ever happened that a set went out and it was perfect. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. There are always errors and omissions within the documents. Not there shouldn't be many like that, but but there's there there's always a certain amount of of things that there may be some conflicts with that you discover when things start to get constructed. And so you rectify those. That's the part I think that people, when they think about the architect and they often think about the, the, the concept design and the cre creative stage, uh, there isn't a necessarily, and maybe I'm making an assumption here, the understanding of the thousands of decisions <laughs> that have to be made to design a building. Uh, 
it's all of this design has to go somewhere. Eventually, you need someone to actually put up the structure. So the client takes all of these designs and plans that the architect's team has created and puts out a tender to contractors, who then respond with their qualifications and what price they can build for. And finally, once construction begins, the architect is still active on the construction site to ensure that the progress is true to the original plan and ensure that the standards are being met. Architects also help to clarify details and solve problems when they arise. But now let's get back to the interview. As Anna wraps up the summary for the process of architecture during the construction phase. Is you do the drawings, they say looks good or not, and if it looks good, you hand them over to someone and then on to the next project. No. And so yeah. you're, yeah. you're with it yeah. for the entire way until like people are actually using and then probably after when yeah. people start using the structure. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that is, I've heard that people have, have sort of think that you do the drawing and then an engineer does the rest. And so, no, you're there from the beginning until the end. And you don't just do the work and then let someone else take care of it. You have to be responsible for it. You have to go and make sure that it's being done correctly and that it's safe. And that's part of protecting the, the public. And then before anyone actually uses it, you have to sign off on um, a form that says, I have done all of this. Actually, before it gets constructed, you have to sign up a form saying, I will review the shop drawings. And then afterwards, you have to say, I, I did do this. So it's a, it's a very diligent yeah. <laughs> process. There's a lot of uh, responsibility in it. And gosh, it's just a really exciting day when, you know, kids are playing basketball in the gym. Once you've completed all of this paperwork with the, the schematics and building drawings and all the legal stuff, what's it like when you get to the construction site for the first time and you see this building start to be created? That's my favorite part. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I just love going out onto the site and seeing something begin to come, to become real, you know, and it's not that it wasn't real when it was on, on paper, but, uh, um, I get very nervous <laughs> and excited when I start to see it, start to see it go up nervous because sometimes you're walking through a space, uh, that's half constructed and you realize, Oh, that's a little bit smaller than I thought. Like that, yeah. that corridor, maybe, um, you know, I met the minimum standard, but, Really, for the, the, the use and the traffic this is going to get, we should have made this two feet wider. You know, other people are probably not criticizing it the same way mm-hmm. I am because I'm just all up in the details on, on these uh, projects. But uh, there's something about putting on the boots and actually getting out onto the, the job site and, and, and seeing people actually, you know, make this happen that, that is really... Uh, well, um, well, I mean, you don't experience that in a lot of different types of work, like... To have something that was just in different people's imaginations is now standing in front of you. Yeah, I mean that comes back to that word creative. It's a bit you take you sort of there's there's something that I've always found so fulfilling about having starting with nothing and ending up with something. And and um, there's a lot that happens along the way. You know that something has to be useful. That something has to be structurally sound. That something has to be on budget. It has to be on schedule. It has to be beautiful you know or it should or let's hope that it 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 can be and and you know and that's uh we know beauty's in the eye of the beholder but uh there's there are some uh, 
Symmetry um, is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone can agree on that for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes asymmetry is, the, you know, the depending, right? Is the way to go. Yeah. But I mean, so that that's a whole other part of it is like, so uh, put aside, you know, the structural integrity, the feasibility, um, the, you know, the location, all this kind of stuff, the practicality. If the thing's not pretty, I feel like that's all people will look at. Everything else might have been absolutely flawless. The best example in history. Like, is that really just the tip of the iceberg? Like, how much work goes into the aesthetic of something versus the structural integrity versus the practicality, all that stuff? I think a lot of work goes into the the beauty of, of the piece, but it, it does often depend on, on the project because there are a lot of things pulling you in different directions. Uh, every, you know, every decision has a lot of different considerations uh, is it barrier free? So if it's somebody who, um, for instance, might be in a wheelchair or somebody who's on crutches or somebody who maybe is just not as mobile as, as others, how are they going to use that doorknob? Is there actually a push button that's next to the doorknob? So if we have a push button next to the doorknob, uh, where's that placed so that it's convenient? Where is it placed so that it actually looks nice? Where is it placed so that it's maybe protected by rain? How much is that push button going to cost? How many push buttons do we need in the building? <laughs> you can see how it yeah. would just go on for days and days. And it's easy to forget a boat, not forget a boat, but it's easy to make a decision uh, based on function, based on very practical things and let the the beauty be sort of the, the a later, not the last priority, but a later priority. So yeah. I think that's really good architects. They keep that still near the top of the priority list. And I think that, there are a lot of ways for things to be beautiful, but then also check off a lot of those boxes. How do you like? How do you respond to negative feedback if you know you're walking onto the site for the first time and you overhear a conversation between two people working on the site and they're like, "Wow, this is this was a poorly thought out uh, archway or something like that," or or if the public's reaction to schematics that were released yeah. or um, renderings are poor. For me, like uh, if I worked hard on those. Yeah. Images? Yeah. Like I would take it so personally. Yeah. Uh, you have to have thick skin. Yeah. And I think that's something that they you really learn in school. Um, so you, you do these projects and you have these um, sessions called crits, like critiques, and you have uh, different arc, um, uh, professors or perhaps uh, practicing architects within the community will come in and they'll critique your work. You put it all up on the wall and you present it, you explain it, uh, and they just go to town. <laughs> you, you've heard some, like, like, there's like urban legends of like them stepping on models. I think that's where you sort of get your initial getting used to criticism training. It's a little bit more difficult in the real world because it's built and it's going to hopefully last for a very long time. And so I think it's always been for me about putting it into context some of the decisions that I've made in a building that have received some criticism, you know, I only, maybe I and those who are involved with it understand all of the different factors that were being considered before those decisions were made. And sometimes I've heard criticism and I thought, yeah, that's, you know, that's right. We prioritized something else like higher in this decision making than um, the item that you're criticizing. And perhaps that's the one that should have uh, received a bit more of our thought process. Or How important is it to get those little details right? 
the little mistakes can take away from all of the great and big achievements of a building. And you have to be able to see the big picture. You have to be able to celebrate the successes and not let the little, and not even mistakes, but sometimes the things that were miscalculated take away from the whole thing. And what is, what is a really um, incredible achievement to have created a place that furthers, maybe it's recreation or community, maybe it's education, maybe it's healthcare. So you need to be able to put it into perspective. <laughs> For sure. And unlike, um, you know, if, I, if I'm designing like a shelf or a cabinet and somebody has one issue with it, you know, there's only so many functions and like ways you can mess up a cabinet or ways to innovate a cabinet. But with an entire building with toilets of different sizes and shapes and probably a hundred cabinets. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but like, there's so many variables. So, so do you, uh, like just as common practice have to consciously separate yourself a little bit from the project. And so is that something you had to work on or does that come a little? No, more I'm still working on that. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly take the projects to heart. I care a lot about them and the results and I don't like uh, mistakes or errors. And I, there's certainly a, a, a process of putting things into perspective that uh, I am not as good at as others are. And I've certainly have seen some of my colleagues and I, and I uh, draw a lot of inspiration from some colleagues who are really quite good at separating themselves from, they don't let, they don't let it get them down. Yep. <laughs> you know, they push forward. This whole time we've mostly been talking about your work, which is, largely related with uh, commercial and public projects. But for jobs that might not legally require an architect, like a cottage or a house, in those cases, is it a luxury to have an architect? Uh, I, I would say yes. I wish it wasn't, you know, and, and it's something that sometimes I personally struggle with a bit. Obviously, we offer we offer a service that's not um, inexpensive, nor should it be. It's a very highly skilled, highly trained and, and, and complicated job. I think that architects could add value in very small ways, but we have to see it through to the end. You can't, my, I had an old, um, an old boss who would say, Anna, we can't not be architects. Like when you're an architect, you're an architect. What he was saying is, you know, if, if we were doing something like a piece of millwork, which is like cabinets and you're putting a drawing say, well, do we have to stamp this drawing? Do we have to seal this drawing? It's like, well, yes, you're an architect and you, and you delivered the services to a client who hired an architect to do this. And by putting that stamp on it, you're saying that you are going to see it through to the end and make sure that it is built in the proper way, that it's safe, that it serves its function. It's very difficult for an architect to give advice. And I'm, I mean, just like every lawyer, doctor, accountant, you know, with some mechanic, uh, we have to be careful about the advice that we give because if somebody acts on that advice and it and it something goes wrong, then we have to be responsible for, for it. Right, because I mean your work is so public facing. I'm sure that kind of just like doctors, at social occasions you're probably asked a lot of these design types of questions, like your opinion on different buildings around town. So generally speaking, how do people respond when you tell them that you're an architect? People are really interested when they tell you or when you tell them that you're an architect. They're genuinely, I don't want to say like, it's not like they're impressed, but I think they're interested. They make a lot of assumptions about 
oh, well, you must be really good at art, or that's interesting, or there's some kind of mystique to being an architect. I think because it's an old profession, and people have sort of this idea of what what that is. And, 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 and maybe because it's, I don't think that people necessarily know, unless they know an architect or have worked with an architect or in the industry, know what a day-to-day looks like. You know, there's part of me that both hates and, you know, loves telling people that I'm an architect. I'm proud of it. It was a lot of hard work. It's something that I, I love doing. I, I always wonder what, you know, what they really think that means. There's a lot of maybe made up visions that you've seen in, you know, TV shows or the movies of someone just like over a drafting board, drawing beautiful pictures, going well, out. Well, I mean, I suppose for a lot of people, and myself included, that is their only exposure to the field of architecture from television and movies. Yes. In yeah. the way they're portrayed. And yeah. So my favorite example is uh, George Costanza in Seinfeld. <laughs> no, he wasn't an architect. No. But he always told people he yeah. was. And I think for a reason. Yeah. Oh, it's because, you know, people are like, wow. And then, um, but like when you see that kind of thing, like if you're a fan, do you like Seinfeld? Oh, I've, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, who, who, who doesn't? Fair. I'm happy you said that. So, but like when you see yeah. that, especially after you've finished all your schooling and now you're working with it, you see the different episodes that he is an architect. And like one of my favorite ones is uh, when he gets accepted as an architect, but then he gets push to the side in lieu of a city planner. Yes. And so that kind of stuff is that plan the city, like the is city any planner. of that? Exactly. Why design one building? You yes. design a whole city. Yeah. Do you see any of that stuff? And you think, is there, is that based on reality at all? Um, oh, uh, no, I mean, I, honestly, I, I get a little bit frustrated. You know, uh, one example of course is Ted Mosby also on How yeah, I Met so Your Mother. I, I'm not as familiar with yeah. that, but I know a lot of people yeah. are. So yeah. like, can you, for me personally, yeah. can you give me the, he's an architect. He's an architect, but it drove me nuts watching that show because he never worked. And, you know, we're always working. And every once in a while, they would throw like a work scene in there. And maybe that's not what the basis of this is. But like he was never working. He was always up to these other hijinks or spending time with his friends and, you know, chasing, trying to meet the mother. And uh, and then at some point, he's designing like a skyscraper in New York City that's changing the skyline, you know, and, and he has like very few people helping him with that. Or like at some point, I think he does have a boss that's involved in it and um, or like a company. But like he is the architect for that skyscraper. It's yeah. just like how long it would take to get to the point where you are the architect for a skyscraper that's like changing the face or the yeah, skyline of New York. But the other thing that actually sort of bothers me about about the way that architects are portrayed in the media, and maybe I just haven't seen enough of them, is that when it's a man, it's, I think, about giving them kind of like a creative edge or like sort of the softer edge or making them seem deeper somehow than maybe they are. Yeah, certainly very, yeah. uh, I mean, the simplest artsy is kind yeah. of like like yeah. a professional, but not yeah. like a cold, like accountant or lawyer, yes. yeah. but like a creative professional yeah like he probably has like gets paid but (laughs) for what he's doing but it's like it's it's all for the good of the people yeah absolutely and then I don't know I'm trying to think of how many women architects I have seen in the media I think there was way back in the day I think one was on Survivor and she didn't know how to make the shelter and that was like the the thing and then uh, or she wanted the shelter to be in not such a great spot or she didn't cite it properly I, I suppose maybe she didn't do a site assessment beforehand Regarding gender diversity in the field itself, for architecture, is that changing at all from what I presume to have been a male-dominated profession in the past? Sure. Um, I mean, I think 
I, and you know, I wasn't there 50 or 60 years ago, but yes, absolutely, it was um, predominantly a male profession. There are a lot of uh, women in the profession today, not as many as men, in particular licensed architects. We seem to sort of drop off at every stage, at kind of every milestone. In my undergraduate degree, we were two-thirds women, one-third men. In my master's degree, we were 50-50. And I, I don't have the numbers on it, but but getting moving into getting licensed, we drop off more. And then, of course, leading companies, we drop off even um, more, you know, women CEOs. Or, and I've been very fortunate in my career that I've worked for a company that, I mean, I've seen the progression even just in my 10 years at this company, whereas when I started, all the bosses, all the partners were men. Since then, my company was bought by a larger corporation, but but our management structure, um, our regional director is now a woman, uh, partner is now a woman, um, lots of our practice leaders who are, are leading different sectors are women, including myself. So I sometimes think that I'm lucky and fortunate in that I fell into a company that has created a, a supportive environment. I think we're seeing more... We're certainly seeing more women in leadership positions in the in the profession, but there's work to be done. One thing that we may always uh, have to face is that the majority of the people who are building our buildings that we design are going to be men. Maybe not forever, but... but you mean but physically? Building? Physically, the, yeah. the contrast. I shouldn't say that they're going to be men. I'd love to see at some point where the construction industry has also reached this kind of equality. When I go on to site, now there might be you know, a handful of women that are on, on site in in the construction process that's there are women working for general contractors project management roles and 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 engineers and but often those who are constructing the buildings are men i think that the trades are making some really big inroads with that with that as well but there's a different experience going on to construction site as a woman i think than there is a man a lot of professions are addressing the same the same kinds of changes and the same inequalities and and it's uh it's an exciting time to, to see, the, see the changes. <laughs> I once disagreed with a professor on this who was saying that when we're, when we're identifying people for different roles, we shouldn't ever take into consideration uh, their gender, their race, their culture. It's, are they the most qualified to do this? And the way that I disagree with that is, of course, I, it's the, I, I think that the person must be qualified, but the way that people perceive an expert sometimes is as an old white man with like, glasses and you know patches on their um, elbows and, and you know like that that kind of professor type and image and I think we can only do that we have to keep our, our minds open to what an expert is and and not create a, a visual uh, about what that person looks like. Anna we started at the beginning talking about how you got into architecture at quite a young age as a young adult but now that you're 15 years down this road is there anything that you weren't quite expecting about what architecture turned out to be? I don't spend as much of my day as I thought I would making things. Not to oversimplify it, because there's a lot of work and effort and consideration and uh, that needs to go into making contract documents and re- representing things, making artistic representations of or building. Uh, we make instructions so that others build things. Like um, Lego instructions is the <laughs> simplest way to... Like, yeah, like really complicated Lego instructions. But you're not actually putting the Lego pieces together. No, no. and I mean, that's, you know, my original joy and the, probably the, the biggest thing 
growing up, when you, you look back on the things you did when you were a kid and you think, well, how did I get here in this career? I was obsessed with Lego. <laughs> My goodness. And I would never follow the direction, or I'd follow the directions first, and then I would build hotels. It's, it's amazing I haven't done a hotel yet. So is that maybe, is it possible that like your hobby that you're doing with building your tiny home, you're, you're filling that kind of gap that you're not quite getting from your day to day? It was Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that I, nest, and that's the, I guess the one thing about trying to create some work-life balance is that you, you're not going to get everything that you want to fulfill yourself out of a job. I mean, maybe some people do, hugely lucky people yeah. or really good decision makers. But I do like, you know, whether it be making an origami flower or actually building the tiny house, like I get a lot of joy uh, from that. And it's, it's something that I thought I would have more in my career. I had a lot of it in school. In the school part of it, you do a lot of making things, a lot of hands-on, a lot of model making or... You know, sometimes architects become furniture designers or vice versa, uh, because one one in which you construct something, I think, is a natural fit. There was uh, one thing I read and the bit of research I did across the board from the point of view of architects that said, if you are a financially motivated person, architecture is maybe not the direction for you. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you touched on, uh, on that. It's something I've kind of uh, forgotten about. I think it's important when people are making decisions about their career. And my very first history class, we had a professor who came up and wrote on the board uh, in the most like sort of intimidating way, the word passion. And then he underlined it and said, if you don't have this, you're not going to make it through. Then where you have to work hard and you don't make lots of money. And you know what? That was news to me. And I, w- I want to say that relatively. Like architecture is... Certainly a career in which you can sustain a good, healthy career and income. Prior to this moment where you are now, what would you have done differently? You know, I try not to look back too much, but it's hard not to at times. I think I took a real, a really direct path, uh, sort of a point A to point B type approach, which would be applying for architecture school right out of high school, starting the bachelor degree, applying for my master's degree right out of my bachelor degree, doing my master's degree, taking a very short, basically like a one-month pause after graduating to develop a portfolio and apply for jobs and get a job. And then I think I took a one-month pause before I started my job. And then now I've been in the same, working for the same company for 10 years. There have been a lot of advantages to that approach. I think I've probably advanced further in my career and for my age than, than uh, perhaps others have. And so if this is my chosen career, then I've got a, you know, kind of like a head start, but it's, it's not a race. <laughs> and so I think if I were to make a change, I, I, I don't regret starting in architecture out of high school because McGill was such a great place to study architecture. Montreal is a really fantastic city to study architecture in, uh, and it's a fantastic school and has a great architecture program. Uh, that said, I probably would have tried to spend more time doing some courses in the humanities and maybe understanding some of these other things that influence cities and design. And uh, and then I think I would have probably done something a little bit different right out of my master's degree. You know, I, I was speaking to uh, a young intern architect the other day who's going to go work in India for um, some time and has this really great opportunity working with an interesting architect who's also a a professor in an American university. And so I think that probably going, working for a little bit, doing some things that maybe gave me a bit more perspective or could give me an experience that I could bring back into my decision-making, my career, that's something I think I would redo. Now, if I had done that, maybe I wouldn't be in the place that I am today or doing what I want to do. It's, you know, chain reactions. Que sera, sera. At the end of the day, I'm sure there's literally 
thousands of people who are thankful for the work you've done and had a positive impact on their lives from the buildings you've helped construct. And thank you from my perspective for shining so much light on what has been a bit of a mysterious career choice for me and maybe for some other people out there as well. So thanks for your time, Anna. You're welcome. One of the things I like most about doing this podcast is discovering people who are in the correct field, especially when that field serves a public interest. It's easy to become a bit cynical or jaded in today's society and assume that every initiative is purely to serve money-grubbing, profit-crazed organizations or people. But then I meet people like Anna, who truly do care about what they do. I've got to say, it's pretty refreshing. As I enter tall buildings and the elevator begins to rise beyond 20 stories, I can't help but think to myself that this tower was constructed by people who really aren't that different from myself. Eh. But the reality is that these buildings don't just go up on a whim. There's an intensive process surrounding these projects over a time period of sometimes years that the public just doesn't see almost any of the effort and preparation that goes on behind the scenes. Anna described one of the things I do believe people struggle with, which is finding a paid position that ticks all of the boxes, which architecture does not do for her. Although the design element and public service do seem to be very fulfilling, Anna and so many others like her look to hobbies to round out her experience. Growing up, I had casually observed that construction sites are largely populated by men. It's never something that I've really considered much, to be honest. I always just took it as the standard. But it's really not a stretch to now realize how tough that must be to break into as a woman. You hear similar things in different areas like the military, or how years ago, how challenging it was for women to get into any type of medical profession that wasn't nursing. I don't have any grand solutions on this one. Just, you know... Just try not to have preconceptions of what a job looks like. So how do you become an architect? At least in this case, it starts probably the way you expected. Just have a personality with a heavy mix of artistic and analytical traits. And of course, you have to play with Lego. So the next time you hear from me, instead of providing buildings for people, I'll be learning about how to provide stories and news for people for my 10th and final interview of How To Season 1, I'll be speaking with a 42-year veteran of public broadcasting, Don Connolly. You might know Don from his time with the CBC on the show Information Morning. So what happens when a simple job with radio transitions to becoming a news lifeline for a province or a relied-upon familiar voice? How do you step away from such a public position? Do you have to act, or are you just yourself on the radio? To learn the answer to these questions and much more, tune in to my next episode of How To.